0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 14, where we're looking at verses 12 through 26. Last week, we're getting, well, right now, we're in the midst of Mark's testimony about the passion of Jesus Christ. We're in the middle of Passion Week. Um, We spent a long time on Wednesday. Jesus did a lot of things on Wednesday of Passion Week. We've now entered into Thursday, but this is him continuing after he has made a very stark contrast between love and hate. Mary's love for him by by pouring the perfume on him demonstrated her worship and love for him. And today we're going to see him prepare his disciples' hearts for his atonement. Now I hope you understand what atonement means. Atonement is is just a, a big word that means paying for something, paying some debt, making reparations or settling debts. That's what atonement is, and that's what Jesus is about to do. In his passion. So let me read this passage and we'll kind of look at what Jesus is getting his disciples to and where he's getting them to. Starting with verse 12 of chapter 14. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a great demonstration of how you're always looking ahead. You're always plan have planned ahead. And you're always arranging the things in this life so that our hearts can get a lesson, get prepared, be right for what you've done for us. So I pray that you'll help us see this this morning and see ways in which you've moved in our hearts, in our lives, and that we can begin to trust you even more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Jesus uses Passover logistics, basically, to, to, and a startling secret and the Passover meal to lay the groundwork for his atonement. I want you to see the progression in this as as we move through it, that that Jesus is getting them ready, getting them ready for something magnificent. So Jesus knows our hearts as well. He knows our hearts, and he knows that, that our hearts need to be ready to receive his atonement. It's not something we decide to do. It's not something we can make ourselves ready to receive. Jesus has to do it, and he does it. And only Jesus truly can prepare a heart to believe in him. So what does Jesus do to prepare the soil of these disciples' hearts for salvation? Well, Jesus establishes three reminders in this passage, three reminders to prepare our hearts for his forgiveness. We need to trust his word, and he's going to expose secrets, and he's going to ask us to remember his sacrifice. So first of all, he wants us to trust his word. Listen to this story in verses 12 through 16 of how we find a place to have the Passover. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city, meaning Jerusalem, and a man carrying the jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of that house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Passover preparations. What is that all about? Well, Passover celebrates when Egypt—I mean, when Israel was delivered from the slavery in Egypt—in the Book of Exodus, you read all about that. The last plague that plagued the country of Egypt was the, the death of the firstborn child, and God told them through Moses, "Take a lamb, kill it, and spread its blood over the doorposts, so that the death angel will not come on your house and take your firstborn." That's the celebration. So, from then that day forward, it has been. Celebration annually, and it's usually sometimes around our Easter, that's why our Easter moves around. So, that gives you kind of a background. Some of the preparations was obviously a a table big enough for 12 guys to, 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 and 13 guys to let basically they don't sit, they they lean like against each other or against pillows, and they're sitting on the floor. So, it's got to be a big enough table for that. It's also got to have unleavened bread properly made. It's got to have no yeast in it, has not, can't be around any yeast. They also have to have bitter herbs, which is what they ate the night they left Egypt. And then it has to have that lamb, that little lamb that's the Passover lamb. And that lamb has to be taken to the temple and slaughtered at the temple. It can't be slaughtered anywhere else. You can't do it. It has to be done by a priest. So there's a lot of preparations. So all of this, like I said, symbolizes the de- deliverance God brought to them. And, and, and brought to them in Egypt to get them out of slavery. They followed God's word then. Jesus is asking us to follow God's word now. And he's asking his disciples. So Passover comes on the 14th or 15th of Nisan. That's their month. And usually around the end of March to the, begin, the middle half of April It's somewhere in that part. point. The Passover day is usually on a Friday before Sabbath. Their Sabbath is the Saturday, their, their worship day. So it starts Thursday evening at sunset, because that's the way they count their days, from sunset to sunset. So that gives you an idea of when this is. This is Thursday evening. Well, it's actually Thursday morning when this all starts, because I'm I'm sure it took them all day to get ready. But God commanded this meal and this sacrifice to be made. He also commanded that it be eaten inside the walls of Jerusalem, not anywhere else. You had to come to Jerusalem, where God put his name, to have this meal. So that's one of the things they had to follow as well. So Thursday morning, Peter and John asked Jesus. And we know it's Peter and John because Luke identifies them. Peter and John said to Jesus, where do you want us to f- fix the Passover? And he says, he gives them this instructions. Very cryptic instructions. You're going to walk into the city walls. You're going to see a man, which is unusual. Usually the women are getting the water. But you're going to see a servant or a man carrying a jar of water. Now that, that place is teeming with people. It's Passover. There's probably 300,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. You're going to walk in there, you're going to see a man carrying a jar, you're going to follow him to a house, and you're going to go in the house and talk to the owner of the house and tell him the teacher wants to have his Passover with his disciples here. Where's your guest room? Now, a lot of people believe that Jesus had prearranged all this, but I just don't, I just don't think he had to. I think it's all supernatural. I think he knew that it would all fall into place when they followed that man with the water jar. So he gives them very cryptic directions to find the place. Why? Why does he do that? Well, first of all, he knows what Judas is up to. So he's hiding the place that they're meeting from Judas right now. He's keeping it secret, very cryptic. The reason is because he does not want the betrayal and the arrest at the wrong time. And in the middle of the Passover meal is the wrong time. So that's one reason why Jesus did it. He's using a strategic tactic to keep Judas in the dark until he was ready for the arrest. The second reason, which is the more important reason for us, is he wants to show his disciples to trust his word, to trust his word. The directions happened, as scripture says, just as Jesus said it would. It happened just as he said. They met a guy with a water jar. They followed him. They talked to one of our house. He had an upper room. It was all furnished. Big enough table for them. No, it's not Leonardo da Vinci's picture. They're not on one side of the table. They're on both sides of the table. Um, they're not sitting on, in chairs. They're on the floor. They had a big enough place for that, and, and they had the place to put the food out, because it's a pretty, pretty elaborate spread, especially for 13 grown men, at least 13 grown men. It could be more people there. It happened, Just the way Jesus said it would it happened just the way he told them there was no variation And that's what Jesus is wanting us to do You know, Jesus had told them many times I am going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried I'm going to be sentenced. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried and I'm going to rise from the grave. He told them this Over and over again. We have it recorded succinctly three times in Mark. But there's many more times he he told them that. There's many more times that he hinted at it. He's told them what's going to happen. And he wants them to trust his words. To believe what he says will happen. That's what they must learn first. To be ready for his atonement, they must learn first... That they got to trust what Jesus says. they got to have complete faith in the words of Jesus Christ. Now, they're not there yet. And and some of them didn't get there completely until after the resurrection and even after the ascension until the Holy Spirit came. But that's what Jesus is asking them to do. So it brings up some questions. Why did the Israelites, when they came to the city of Jericho and these mighty, mighty walls of Jericho, why did they walk around the, the walls one time a day for six days... And then seven times on the seventh day. Why did he do that? Why did they do that? Because they were told to. They were told to. They were told, walk around the wall once a day, don't make a sound. On the seventh day, walk around it seven times, and the walls will come tumbling down, as the song goes. And they did. Why did Noah build a boat when he'd never seen rain? He'd never seen an ocean. He'd never seen a sea. He may not have even seen a pond. I don't know. Why did he do that? God told me to. He's hammering the nails. God told me to. Why did Abraham take his only son Isaac up to a mountain, onto an altar, and almost sacrifice him? Because God told him to. Because God told them to do these. When God speaks, and he has, by the way, when God speaks... He expects us to trust him. Jesus does too. And that's what he's telling his disciples right here. After Jesus, this is after Jesus washed his feet, their feet. Here's what he tells them about obeying. Turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is after he's washed their feet and everything. Judas is there still. I want you to listen. In John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, what Jesus tells them. And it's the same thing. This is during the whole Passover meal time, Starting with verse 12 of chapter 13. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Trust Jesus' words. It's as simple as that. Do you? Do you trust Jesus' words? Do you trust his words? And if you've spent any time in your Bible, you know his words. If you've read any part of his scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you know his word. When God saves us, he expects us to trust his words, which means obey them. Most problems stem from trusting his words. Most of our our difficulties in life stem from the fact that we don't trust God enough, you know, I was talking with somebody just a few weeks ago. We pray about something. We put it up on the throne of grace of God Almighty through Jesus Christ. We put it on the throne. We got it all packaged for him, and and we pray over it, and then we take it back and go home with it. We go, I got this now. You know, I prayed over it, but I I can solve it now. We don't really trust him. So let's start easy, okay? Let's start easy with some of the words that God tells us, that Jesus tells us. He tells you and me to worship him. We're here today to do that. He tells you and me to love his son, Believing in Jesus Christ is loving his son. He tells us not to lie, not to lust, not to covet. He tells us to love his word, the Bible. He tells us to pray. He tells us to seek good for everyone, to try to make everybody good for everybody. He tells us to be kind, to encourage others, to love selflessly anyone. We don't get to pick and choose, anyone. Love your wife, love your husband, Don't antagonize your children. Train them in God. Take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Live your life as an offering to God. Renew your mind. Take sin seriously. God tells us that. Take sin seriously. Every sin. Do for the least of these. Put others before yourself. Think of others more highly than yourself. See, trusting these words and obeying them with your life will be pleasing to God. And it'll make your life better. I promise you. If we lived out the gospel every day in our life, it would make our life easier. No, it won't make it easier. It'll make it better, but it won't make it easier. Now let's step it up a little bit. Let's get a little harder. What if God asked you to build a boat in the desert? He says it's going to flood. You're in the middle of the desert. Build a boat. Well, let's go to something a little different. What if he asked you to give at least 10% of your income to the church, to to the charities, to God's missions of, of the gospel? What if he told you to serve him in another country? What if he called you to missions like he's called Emily? Would you go? What if he just asked you to cross the street to talk to someone about Jesus? Which, by the way, he has asked you to do that in his word see god has told us many things to do he has told us many things to do he has given us his great and precious promises that lead us to reach the world have faith in god remember jesus told him that have faith in god have faith in god jesus told his disciples you know what that means it means have faith in god's words trust his words trust what he says And that will change everything in your life. I'm not the only one that can testify to that. There's people out here that can do the same. So first of all, Jesus says, you got to trust my words. That's the first step to getting your heart ready for the atonement and the salvation. Now he's asking us to open up our hearts. Trust his words. Open your heart to his forgiveness. He's going to expose our secrets. Look at verses 17 through twenty one. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be distressed, and say to him, one by one, Surely not I he said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not even been born. Wow. So after sunset, they came to this place, the upper room, as we call it a lot of times, where they're going to have the Passover. Jesus and the other ten disciples joined Peter and John in the room, and they're reclining at the table to eat. They're reclining and, and, and enjoying a good meal. I mean, it's a, it's a supper. It's not like our little communion with one, one piece of bread and a small cup of juice. It is a supper. It is a meal. And while they're eating, Jesus drops this bomb on them. One of you will betray me. One of you eating with me. One of you enjoying my company at the Passover meal will betray me. Whew, what a shock they're distressed. I love that word, but there's even better words. Grieved, sorrow. It grabs them by the heart. And they begin to ask Jesus one by one, not as a group collectively shouting at Jesus. They all, I mean, may have went around the table one by one. Is it I? Is it me? Surely not I. They they ask him. They're begging God, Jesus, to tell them. See, they don't even know their own hearts. They don't know if their allegiance, allegiance to Jesus is going to falter. They're still doubting. They're still confused. They can't determine if their own heart is loyal, which is why we need to always be exposing our hearts. Is your heart loyal? We'll talk about that more in a minute. Jesus chose this answer though, which is very general reply. It is one of the 12. What Jesus is doing there is that anybody else that's in the room serving, he's eliminating them. It's one of you 12 guys that's been rocking around with me for three years and enjoying the benefits of knowing me as the son of God. It's one of you. One who is dipping his bread in the bowl with me. Now, let me talk about these bowls. These bowls are are bowls of paste. They're nuts and fruits and and something else um, mixed together. It's kind of like a dip. And they dip their their unleavened bread in it. And it doesn't have any yeast in it, by the way. So they dip their unleavened bread in it as part of the meal, and they eat it. But these are not like everybody's got their own bowl or you're sharing a bowl. It's like a, a group bowl. So, like you, you go to a Mexican restaurant, you get your sauce and your chips, and you sit there and you dip out of the different bowls. So, Jesus is really still not giving them a specific answer. Because there's probably at least four or five that have dipped out of the same bowl Jesus has dipped out of. One of you who is dipping at this. So, it's, it kind of narrows it down. It's near him, it's near Jesus. And here's the thing. Judas sat close to Jesus at this supper. He was really close to Jesus, somewhere in proximity-wise. Why do we know that? Because Judas, in Matthew records this, Judas turned to Jesus and said, Not I, surely, Lord. (laughs) Wow, to the very end, he's playing the part. To the very end. You know what Jesus said to him? It is as you say. Or another way to phrase it is, you've said so. So Judas is nearby, and by this time, Jesus has washed Judas's feet. Just keep that in mind. He washed the person he knew was going to betray his, him, their feet, and their feet were nasty. He had eaten with him and the others before Jesus reveals this. In Luke and John's account of this, Jesus dips a piece of bread in that paste and hands it to Judas. And when he does, you know what happens? Satan enters Judas. Satan enters him. Yikes. I mean, that's like, that's scary. And this is why Jesus said, woe to him who betrays me. Woe. When Jesus says, woe, you better woe. You better stop and look. It would have been better if Judas Iscariot had never existed because his punishment will be severe. Yes, there are, there are levels of punishment in hell And Judas is probably one of the worst because he could not see that Jesus Christ was the Savior. And Jesus reminded them, hey, I am going to my death, burial and resurrection, just as it is written about me, just as it is written in Scripture. He's going to finish his mission that way. There's a couple of places that kind of refer to a betrayal like this. The best one is Psalms 41.9 where the psalmist writes, "You you have betrayed me you who have shared my bread, you have lifted up your heel against me. But Jesus is more, really more speaking about, I'm going to go through my mission the way it is written about me. I am not going to go a different way. It's going to happen as the scriptures have told you. And what Jesus is calling his disciples right here is to be introspective, to be honest in their heart of their allegiance to him or not. He's calling them, exposing the, to expose their heart. Is it I that betrays you? They don't even know where what their level. And Peter finds out later he's really not as committed as uh, he thought he was. God calls us to expose our heart to Him because that's the best person to expose it to. You know, tr- children try to hide their sins. If you've got any, ever had children, you know, crumbs coming down their chin. I didn't get a cookie. You know, I didn't. I didn't get my hand in the cookie jar. Children are, it's, it, either the evidence or their words eventually give them away. Our kids are always frustrated that we always knew when they had done something wrong. I said, God's on our side. We're parents. So, you know, he's, he's, showing, he's showing kindness to it. But you know what? As adults, we get a lot more, a lot cleverer. I don't like that word. It's more clever to me. But cleverer in hiding our faults. As adults, even, even though our sins will find us out, we know that. We, when we get caught, we start playing the blame game. You know, who did it? We start pointing at finding some scapegoat for our sins. You know, many of us are playing poker with God. We got our hand, we can see it, but He can't, you think. Really, God, God calls us to play solitaire, to lay every card on the table, to not try to hide anything from Him. And it's individual, He comes looking at our hearts. And Jesus asked to expose our hearts to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to refine us. This is not to punish us. If you're a believer in Christ, you're just getting made better when you give up your sins. You're just being made better when you get your your soul open to him. But if you don't open your heart to him, he'll open it up for you, trust me. Here's a couple of passages to remind you that. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23 but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sins will find you out. I've quoted that to my kids so many times, <laughs> but I need to quote it to myself because my sins have found me out as well. Isaiah 59:12. for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Psalm 69 has got another good passage. You can read that one later. Our secrets are always before his eyes. We have no secrets with God. You have no secrets with God. God sees everything. He knows what your heart's thinking. He misses nothing. Just because you haven't been punished or something bad hasn't happened doesn't mean God's ignored it. He's just showing you some mercy for the time being. We have to admit, do we know our iniquities? We need to admit that. You know, the the, the phrase out there, it's not wrong unless you get caught. It's not wrong unless you get caught. I hear that a lot around tax time. I hear that a lot around automobile rules, traffic rules. We laugh, but we still do this in some ways. You know, we hold grudges because we're not getting caught at that. We have grudges in our hearts. We cheat on our taxes, maybe. We think angrily about someone. We've got anger issues with someone. We break the traffic laws. We speak disparagingly about others. See, many of our hidden and unseen sins are fully exposed to God's eyes. You've gotten away with nothing. I don't care what you think. You've not gotten away with it. God knows the truth. Some people will ask me, well, why does all these evil people get away with all these things and they don't get punished by God? Because they will be punished by God. And the only life they're going to enjoyment they're going to get is what they've got right now in their life. And God's being merciful to them to let them have their fun. But it will come back on them one day, when they die, especially. God knows the truth. And just like Judas, we can convince ourselves that we're not doing anything wrong. Matter of fact, Judas probably thought he was doing something noble. He was going to be popular with the the chief priests and the Pharisees, and maybe even popular with the Roman uh, government because he had pointed out a revolutionary. We convince ourselves that we're not doing anything wrong, and we think that we're fooling everyone. Here's a newsflash, a good newsflash, okay? Part of receiving the atonement of Jesus Christ is the fact that we don't have to hide our sins anymore. You don't have to worry about hiding them. Jesus died for all of them. There's not a sin out there that he didn't die for. He died for all of them. So confessing, repenting, owning them is the beautiful part of our salvation. You don't have to be ashamed of them anymore. His death paid for all of them. He atoned for all of them. We should never be afraid. We should never be coy or evasive about our sin. Christ freely died for it, so let's own it. It, it, It's a lot faster, trust me. If, I, if I've sat on a sin and tried not to even acknowledge it in my own heart, it just gets, I just get miserable. David even talks about it, I think, in Psalms 32. My bones ached because I was withholding my sin. This is the type of reflection and confession we should have daily as we come together to worship God, too. Hear me. You, you can't hide anything from God, so own it. Confess it. Give it up. Expose your secret sins to God. So he can help you overcome them. Because that's what it's all about. It's not so he can go, yeah, I see you. You're bad. He doesn't do that. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Expose your secret sins to God so he can help you overcome them. He's looking at the future. It's always about the heart, and he's always trying to make it better. Expose all your secrets to the one who already knows them. That's the cool part. He already knows how bad you are, what you've done. So Jesus tells them they need to trust his words. They need to expose their secrets. And the last thing he tells them is they need to honor his atonement. He gives them a a meal to remember his sacrifice by. Let me read verses 22 through 26. This is the establishment of the Lord's Supper, what we know as the Lord's Supper. Verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives remember his sacrifice. So between Jesus exposing the betrayer and the institution of the Lord's Supper, Judas leaves. John records it, and nobody knew where he was going, but Jesus sent him on an errand. Supposedly, that's what they thought. But he leaves. He knows where Jesus will be next. He knows Jesus will be at the Mount of Olives. And he knows that's the perfect place. It's dark. It's outside the city walls. It's a perfect place to Spring the trap, if you will. So Jesus has purged the room by identifying the betrayer. The one person in the group of 12 that didn't trust Jesus, that wasn't going to trust Jesus, has been removed. And now those that are still there are ready for the meal, the memorial meal of his atonement, to celebrate his atonement. See, Mark's version is a little abbreviated. If you read Matthew and Luke's version, there's definitely a little bit longer. And remember, there's like three chapters, four chapters in this section where Jesus is teaching his disciples in in John. The elements of the bread and the wine served at the Passover, Jesus now uses them for a different purpose. He transforms them. He transforms the first Passover into a new and eternal Passover for sin to celebrate that. Unleavened bread just means it's got no yeast in it, it's got no salt in it, it represents the body of Jesus, of Jesus that he sacrifices for atonement. So, why did he have a representation of his body? Now, first of all, I've got to correct something out there that's out there. No, his bread in our ceremony does not become his body, okay? It's a symbol, it doesn't, it's not a factual representation. So, it's not his actual body. But there are some out there that teach that. It is a symbol. It is a symbol of his body. It's a symbol of the lamb that was killed for Passover. It is a symbol of the lamb that, that came to take away the sins of the world. And the lamb's body that was eaten as a memorial of God's deliverance, they ate the Passover lamb together, and they had to eat it between sunset on Thursday and sun, and, and midnight on Thursday. They had to eat that lamb. That was what the bread represents, is his body. The body now becomes that which delivers us from death. Us from the curse of death and sin and then the cup of wine in the passover meal proceedings there's four cups of wine that are drank and sort of saluted over and passed around so he takes the last one the fourth cup of the of the passover and it becomes the cup containing the symbol of his blood his blood without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin There's no redaction of sin. There's no wiping it out, removal of it. This is by God's decree. It's not something I invented. It's in his word. It's what he says. It has to be blood that cleanses the sin. Atonement can't happen without blood. So Jesus' body was slain for our sins so that his blood would pour out and and wash away those sins forever. This is the new covenant. This is the covenant he's making. It's the new covenant. All the other covenants are gone. This is the covenant that by the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ alone, you can be saved. You can be made right with God. Jesus' body and blood were sacrificed for the many who would, by faith, trust in him for forgiveness. He says this is for many, a lot of people. His body and his blood seals the covenant. And what's the great thing about this is it's not like a, a contract, a 50-50 contract. And it's not even like you've, we've got a part to play Jesus dies, and his blood seals the covenant, and it's a covenant God makes with everybody who will believe. That's the only condition. By faith, you accept this covenant. And there was no other way for our sentence to be taken. A sinless death was required, and only Jesus was sinless because he was God. That's a whole other sermon. But then Jesus adds one more fact. He says, I won't drink this again, until we're in the kingdom of God. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelations 19:9, 9, When we will all be gathered, when the last soul is saved on planet Earth, we will all be gathered to a great supper in heaven. And there, he will enjoy the cup with us one more time. We will sit down and we will feast with him. And Jesus longs for that day, as we should. And then they sang a hymn. And left and went out to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives was across east, on the east side, across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem, and it's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. They went out to the Mount of Olives, but they sang a hymn first. Probably what they sang was Psalms 118, which is the last hymn of the set of hymns from 113 to 118, the set of hymns that they sang during the Passover. So they probably sang that. Jesus' last Passover was completed. And soon he will be the atonement sacrifice for many. And Jesus has prepared his disciples for this. They really don't even know it though. That's what's kind of interesting. They really don't know that he's been preparing them with these events. But he gave them this ordinance to remember his sacrifice by. We call it the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper. We have remembrances. Last Sunday was 9-11. We remembered that tragedy. Um, this week, Queen Elizabeth has passed away. There's been lots of remembrances about that. July 4th, the, the Declaration of the Independence. November 11th, the day World War I ended. Memorial Day, when we celebrate the fact that people have passed in our military. There are, these things are meant to remind us of good events, of great opportunities, or tragic losses. Remembering is a good thing. And Jesus set a meal in place right here To remember the best moment in history, the best news you could ever get, that he died for your sins, his death for our sins to prepare us for eternal life in heaven so that we can enjoy that marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen to a couple of verses out of Psalms 118. This this is the last hymn Jesus sang on planet earth. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That's the kind of celebration that needs to be going on in our hearts. We need to hear the promises there. I shall not die. I shall live. I shall remember the Lord's deeds because salvation belongs to our God. That's why I said a while ago, you don't need to be ashamed of your sins because God has already saved you from them if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper was a moment of preparation for his disciples even though they didn't really know why. They didn't really grasp the concept of it at that point in time. And now it serves to remind us, to renew us, to refresh our hearts about what Jesus has done for us. And we do it on a somewhat regular basis. We observe this supper to commemorate his death and burial for our sins. It is something we should do often. If we fear that it may become too routine or mundane because we do do it too often, I've heard that excuse, then we have kind of lost focus on why we do it, okay? Paul instructed, when he gave clear instructions about how to do the Lord's Supper, he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We should do it often to remind ourselves and to tell the world that Jesus Christ has died for them, that he's atoned for their sins. Now, if you feel nothing during your, your communion experience, then maybe you've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. And maybe he hasn't done anything for you. He died a horrible, torturous death for your sin. Your death sentence was not canceled. It was put on Jesus Christ. It wasn't just done away with. It was put on jesus christ today if someone gets exonerated from their crime or from their their sentence it just goes away nobody serves jesus took it he took the death penalty for us got to remember that when we take the 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 bread and the and the and the cup the body and blood of christ paid the sentence you carried so you could be right with god forever that's a long time forever eternally you're right with god if you trust in christ so the Lord's Supper should bring all of us to our knees in gratitude for the amazing grace he's shown us. The amazing grace God has shown by his Son's son. In two weeks, we will observe the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning. It is for the believer. So be ready. Have your hearts prepared. If you're not a believer, we can fix that too. We'll talk about that in a second. Jesus prepares his disciples to trust him, to expose their hearts because he's about to do an amazing thing. He's going to atone for their sin and ours. That's what he's doing here. So imagine if in two weeks you've trusted Jesus' words like we've talked about. You've, you've been obeying him and following him actively. Imagine if you've exposed your heart to him, all the nooks and crannies of your heart, all the sins that you've been hanging on to and hiding from him. Imagine how the supper would bless your heart in two weeks if you've done this. And Jesus gives us the way to be prepared to remember him and remember his atonement for our sins. So trust his words. Trust his words. Reveal your sins to him and remember his sacrifice. So let's take some time now to pray that we can all learn to do this better because we can always get better. This is a time of pastoral prayer. We'll have a time of silent prayer if you want to come to the front and pray. It'll be for a minute or so and then I will close us out. So let's let's pray.